I'm Connor Geerty and welcome to Leaders in Shape, a podcast series in which I get to speak with some of the most influential figures shaping the fields of social sciences, humanities and the arts. This time I spoke to award-winning author, academic and barrister Philippe Sands. We discussed his writing process, the pressures of balancing storytelling and analysis, as well as some of the big issues explored in his latest book, The Rat Line. Love, Lies and Justice on the Trail of a Nazi Fugitive. But to begin our conversation, I asked Philippe about which of his many professional activities he most identifies with. Well, first, uh, Conor Gitt, it's really terrific to do this and I commend you and, and the Academy. What a fabulous uh, initiative. I'm really pleased to be part of this and really pleased to be doing it with you. It's a question I think I, probably like other people, ask myself uh, a lot. Um, you know, involved in various activities, but perhaps master uh, of none. They all interact, I think. Um, I mean, I started off life as an academic without ever intending to be an academic in my mid-20s when I was mentored by one of my teachers at university, Ellie Lauterpacht, and he invited me uh, to work with him as a research fellow. And so I opened that door first. And I think because that door was the first to be opened. It's the one that is so central. But I always knew that I was interested in how ideas, whether they're in the classroom or on the page, influenced the real world. My world is international law. I teach at UCL. And I bring the other activities that I've got into, into that academic world. So the academic world followed the legal world. And that was simply because Ellie Lauterpacht said, as an academic in international law, you have to be involved in practice to see how it actually works. And then I came to realize that actually later on, the real influences were not in the courtroom. It was actually the power of words and ideas. And I went back to writing, but I wanted to reach a bigger audience. And so the three lives, academic, lawyer, writer, are, 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 I think, very closely interconnected. I see, I think that's absolutely right, Philippe. I see, however, a very strong dimension of the lawyer in your work. There was a little point in the latest book, The Rat Line, where you said something like, I got all the chronology, I'm going to do this like a lawyer. And I had a vision there of you with, as it were, those not metaphorical in law, lever arch files. And this intimidating, if I may say, array of material. And you've got you and you've got the team, undoubtedly, but you're sorting it all out as though you were putting a case to a court. Do you think mm -hmm. the lawyer's skills of organization, respect for data, have been kind of your calling card as a, as a writer of, broadly speaking, non-legal stuff? In a sense, yes, but I take it one step further. Because what I came to understand very early on uh, was that there was a disconnect between the world of international law that was recounted in the fabulous treatises that I used, you know, the books by Bowett and Brownlee, the people we knew and admired and still do admire so much, and what happened as I got into the courtroom. And what I came to understand was that what the treatises did not fully accommodate was the intervention of the individual human being, the judge, 
the counsel, the witness, the court usher, whoever it may be. And so I would say it's not so much the organizational skills of being the lawyer, the ability to digest vast amounts of material, working with wonderful teams of younger lawyers often and, and academics. Actually, most of my research assistants are, are from UCL and they're extraordinary PhD students, LLM students. But it's being in the courtroom and seeing the reality of how the law functions in practice. And that's what I've taken up in the writing of the book. It's the attention to minute detail, which I've come to understand allows us to understand a great truth. You're in court, you're arguing some arcane, arcane point of international law, and the judge who you have identified as the most important of the 15 judges raises an eyebrow at a particular moment, and you notice it, and it causes you to take a different direction. That's what I'm fascinated by. There is a really interesting tension in law, and you've alluded to it, between the power of the personal narrative and the underlying legal principles. And when as an advocate you try and win a case, you try and locate the personal in the minds of the judges and guide them to the principle, I agree. In your book, your books, most recently, I think the Rattlin, but also East Westry, is there a kind of bargain going on here, which you might call almost a Faustian bargain, between telling a gripping story and losing some of the analysis? Because the stories are so good. Hmm. You think, crikey, this is John Lacar, which happens to be true, rather than what are the more general points he's making? Are you conscious of a kind of deal you're making with yourself where you're trying to keep principles and analysis, but you're aware the personal is so good, you might allow it occasionally to swallow the principle. You're very astute, Connor. I mean, I'm juggling different audiences. So when I started with East Westry, my wonderful then dean at UCL, Hazel Gen, who you'll know uh, so well, said, Philippe, make sure, make sure there are plenty of footnotes because we want to be able to put it in for the REF. And I said, don't worry, Hazel, the legal scholarly audience is very important for me. I want my peers to treat this with respect. But of course, the publisher says, oh, no, you can't have any footnotes because um, there's empirical evidence which shows that footnotes reduce book sales by about 50% or more. So we settled in the end on endnotes, but there are hundreds, if not thousands of endnotes in both East West Street and Ratline. And that is a reflection not only of being under the cosh of my dean and the support of UCL for this kind of writing has been absolutely wonderful. And I want to record that. I'm deeply grateful uh, to, to, to my colleagues for letting me off the leash slightly. But, but it's also incredibly important for me that the international law community that I care about around the world will treat this as a, you know, they may disagree with aspects of it. So I've, I'm writing for a double audience. I'm writing for my legal academic peers and other academic peers, but I'm also part of a project which is to reach a broader audience because legal academics, frankly, live in a ghetto. International law academics, let me be narrow about it. We speak to each other. And we don't communicate very well with people in other departments. I've noticed that at SOAS and, and, and at UCL. And we're even worse at communicating with the public. And one of the things that I noticed, it was actually on the march 
against the Iraq war back in 2003, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people walking with banners, carrying the words of the United Nations Charter. And one of our young children said, what does that mean? What do those words mean? And it was fascinating to me to see the way in which international law had jumped into public discourse. And I wanted to connect to that bigger audience. You're not quite you're not quite not admitting that sometimes it comes at a price. This is not to put you on the line. Yeah. But at the end, you say, oh, I'm not so sure about I'm not so sure about this. This genocide thing. I'm not so sure about yeah. it. Uh, maybe it's going too far. And then the real thing's crikey. I didn't expect that. It's as though there's a sort of scholar intellectual breaking through with a kind of sociological distance at the end of a story which has a kind of Hollywood grip to it, you know? Do you feel that as well? Absolutely. And and what I've come to understand is that sometimes in the writing about ideas, less is more and you don't need to get off the fence. So so you've absolutely picked up that, that... East-West Street is also a reflection of an internal struggle. Here are two ideas. Hirschlauter Pact, the primacy of the individual, human rights of the individual, crimes against humanity on the one hand. On the other hand, Raphael Lemkin, no, people get killed because uh, not of what they've done, because of who they happen to be. So we must protect the group. And there is this struggle. And frankly, throughout East-West Street, I am with louter pact intellectually and that becomes very clear to the reader except right at the end of the book i find myself in a place a mass grave at which there are louter packs family still today and my grandfather's family and i'm suddenly overwhelmed not in an intellectual way but in an instinctual way by the power of lemkin's idea there's a sort of epiphany you know yeah of course lemkin was onto something But the tension between the two men, between the two ideas, and the inner tension that I have is not one that I have to resolve and not one I have to turn into a thesis. It's for others, I think, to run with it. My job is to identify how the law becomes an instrument for articulating points of tension between two extraordinary ideas. And on the situation of people, again, we have a question from Keith Mayer. I'm hoping to bring these questions in, folks, as and when we go through it. Very interesting one. He found... Chilling is the word that Keith uses about Frank and Vokta, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, in your book, that they were so intelligent and cultured men. Uh, And it certainly comes through extraordinarily in in the books. But what I'm asking is something different. Is it just the accident of birth, upbringing, family background, political affiliation that distinguishes a louder pact from a Frank? Or are there inner cores in people that can turn you in one direction and and, and and never in another. How long have you got, Connor? Um, I, I mean, it's the big question. Vahum, why? What happens? What causes two extraordinarily intelligent individuals, highly cultured, highly educated? In the case of Otto Wächter, who enters the University of Vienna Law School on the same day as her Schlauter Pact in 1919, and 25 years later, will exterminate his classmates' entire family. And in the course of doing that, will turn on his own teachers and remove them from their positions as professors at the University of Vienna, fire them, remove their pension rights, and consign them to Buchenwald and to Regenstadt. How does that happen? Now, that is a question that a lawyer 
cannot answer. A lawyer can lay out the kinds of factors that come into play, but I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychoanalyst. I'm not a sociologist. I'm not an anthropologist. My job is to lay out, coming back to an earlier question, the the evidentiary basis. What we are, we're not perhaps good for so much as lawyers, but we're good at digesting the material and identifying the factors that have could have come into play that would have caused Otto Wächter to cross lines at a particular moment. But the style of the writing is I'm very inspired by a great Austrian writer called Stefan Zweig. If there is one book to read right now for our times, it's his his memoir published posthumously, The World of Yesterday in English, which deals was published after his suicide and which deals with what happened in Europe in the 1930s. And the style of Zweig, who was also an extraordinary historian, is not to impose his conclusions on the reader. And there, there is a tension between Philippe the academic, Philippe the lawyer, Philippe the writer. And I hold back. I've got my views, I've got my ideas, but I want to leave it to the reader to form their own view. You do, however, Philippe, picking up a term that you've just used, you do impose this story on a, a living family. So it's not a novel. It's, it's a Nazi love story, as you call it, a sort of Nazi love story. But there are people out there. And there is obviously this person with whom you've worked, as people will see in the book, Horst. But there's a lot of other people there. Uh, I, well, I thought poignant was where one of them asks you, could you not publish this in Austria? I don't want my family to know. Now, what I'm interested in is firstly, whether there was a lot of pressure under the surface from members of the family, whether threatening legal action or not, I don't need to know, concerned to stop it because one of the themes of the book is the divisions within the family. Divisions is too strong. Mm. It's a differing point of view about the book. Mm. And secondly, relatedly, do we all as, ch as children have obligations to know about the conduct of our parents? Or is this a unique situation, the Holocaust? So a lot of, a lot of private interaction with family members, um, which is obviously not um, not set out in the book. I did just write a piece on the online version of the York, the New Yorker magazine, which tells a particular story, um, which is very poignant. We don't need to get into it now. I, I mean, coming back, I, I'm, I'm really enjoying your questions because they're causing me to dig deep in thinking. But the primary relationship was with this man, Horst Wächter, born in 1939 who is not responsible for his father's actions or his mother's actions, and yet is in a state of denial about them. What is my function as an interlocutor? And in this, I think my academic training becomes very important. I feel I have a responsibility to treat him fairly. I promise him and I undertake to ensure that his ideas are reflected in the text. And I think rightly, a couple of people have criticized the rat line as being a tad too repetitive, but that's because when you're in touch with someone for 10 years and the same themes keep emerging, I, I, I owe it to him. So to come to your central question, I, I have tried to treat fairly those with whom I disagree and respectfully. Some people, for example, are hinted at but not named because it's plain they would not wish their names to be in the book, and to put their names in the book would have consequences for them. The central thrust to coming to your second question 
in, in relation to this is that um, Horst will say, my duty as a father, my duty as a son is to honor my father. And that, of course, is a wholly respectable position. If Horst were a Nazi or an anti-Semite or a Holocaust denier, I wouldn't engage with him, but he's none of those things. He is a man who has been damaged in another way by the events of 33 to 45. And he's different from the man who introduced me to him. He's different from Nicholas Frank. The first time I meet Nicholas Frank, the son of Hans Frank, who'd been Adolf Hitler's personal lawyer from 28 to 33, Nicholas says to me, you know what, Philippe, I'm against the death penalty in all cases, except in the case of my father. I hate my father. And Horst doesn't like that. And so there is a tension. And perhaps, perhaps, as I'm speaking with you, I, what's emerging is that what I'm attracted to is tensions of an intellectual kind between ideas, tensions of an emotional kind, tensions of an instinctual kind. And that is something that comes from the classroom, where we often like to have people posit different views and then arbitrate between them, or in the courtroom. And maybe a common theme between the three parts of my being is the juxtaposition of instincts and ideas that pull in opposite directions. I'm from a culture which has, I'm following this up and I'm tying it down a little bit, a shocking 20th century record of brutality toward lost children, mm. literally dying, dumped in homes. Have I an obligation if I form a view about a, an aunt or a grandfather or a father or a priest whom I knew very well, that they were complicit in it. Have I an obligation to know that? How far does this go, this, this obligation to educate oneself? Or does one draw the line and say, what's over is over? Let me, let me take that in a different direction, but relatedly. I have only realized in the last 15 or 20 years, the extent of my own country's complicity with horrors of the past. I frankly had never thought about colonialism and racism with the degree of depth that I think it justified. And what the conversations with Nicholas and Horst have thrown up for me is the way in which individuals and families and towns and entire countries deal with their past. There's no cookie cutter one size fits all. What's very striking for me is the way that Germany, how Germany and Austria and how German and Austrian families have dealt differently with these pasts. And neither is more right than the other. But the failure to engage with that past, I think it's one of the themes that emerges from both books, has consequences. In other words, pushing these matters under the carpet doesn't make them go away. And that has led me to a position where I think increasingly I've come to the point of understanding that Britain's colonial construction, and indeed even an entity like the British Academy with its name, the British Academy. You remember when I was on the commission on a British Bill of Rights created by the 2010-2015 government, I'd arrive in, uh, I'd arrive in Belfast uh, and in Edinburgh, and they'd say, no, 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 we won't have British in the name. That is a reflection of a colonial construct. And we have not in the United Kingdom engaged as, for example, Germany has with its past. And I think now we're paying a price. I've come to understand we're paying a price for that. 
Brexit, our political situation. Now, these kinds of things are intimately connected to matters that we have not within our own families, within our own communities, within our own towns, within our own country engaged with. And I think for Ireland, you're describing the same thing. It's probably one of the reasons I feel so comfortable in Ireland, because although it's not addressed, what is very explicit is that it hasn't been addressed. Interesting, because I'm wondering whether whether the power of memories is related to cultural power. So we've been able in Great Britain to control our unpleasant memories of the past by really concentrating on bits we think are great, the Second World War and so on and so forth. And there's quite a pushback now within the culture in which we both live and work against memory. Don't go too far, don't knock that statue, Let's stop going on and on about colonialization. And there are lots of academic outrages mm. who will support that. Equally, some famines are completely forgotten, but mm. the Irish one isn't because the Irish were able to turn it into a culturally powerful mm. event. Lots in Africa, forgotten, just like the colonial exploitation was often of marginalized peoples. Do you think in a way, referring back to your own books and your success, that you're picking up an arena that is already familiar to people that has been successfully recalled and that that adds power to the narrative, and that there are forgotten disasters that remain forgotten because of the lack of power to articulate the concerns underlying them. Absolutely. So my writing project right now, a series of five lectures that I'm delivering next year in The Hague on Chagos and decolonization, a story I knew nothing about growing up. Did we know that between 1968 and 1973, the British government or successive British governments removed more than 2,000 human beings from their homes in a place called the Chagos Archipelago in the Indian Ocean and consigned them to the four corners of the world, to Mauritius, to Seychelles, and to a place called Crawley next to Gatwick Airport. And there they cast them aside. And those folk want to go home. And the British government now still today, having lost a series of court cases, does not want them to go home. And that has caused me to dig very deep into my own education. I went back and found my copy of my history book, Geoffrey Treese, This Is Your Century. I don't know if you ever came across that book. It is staggering to read it. You know, I'm 12 years old, reading this in 1972, and it's all about the glories of empire. And there are the little vignettes of this troublesome little man, Mahatma Gandhi, causing difficulties in India, looked a bit like a monkey with glasses. That's in the book. I mean, it is astonishing. And and I'm a reflection. And in a sense, it is the opening of these stories that have caused me to revisit my own assumption, my own prejudices, racial, colonial, uh, and other. And I find that very exciting. Actually. It's very interesting because we're back where we began because it's been law that has driven the Shagos yes. Islands yes. centre stage, yes. even in the case. Yes. And there's been successions of cases, we don't need to say to people, defeat here, defeat there, defeat there. So sometimes even the process is successful. And a great one which kicked off this whole thing was Pinochet, which brought home to people the possibility of punishment. Now, there's a question here, which isn't just about the success of law. Mm. It's whether what's happened is that human rights has become all about punishment. I'm focusing on Pinochet. I'm focusing on the International Criminal Court. But human rights used to be about protecting people. And indeed, in the Sheikh Asal, it remains so. But actually, a large part of it 
is about crime. It's about punishment. And often human rights advocates, you hear them now say, oh, that person didn't get sentenced to long enough, or that person didn't suffer enough, or that person got acquitted. Is that something that you notice and concern you, or am I wrong in my opinion? Uh, you know, it's very funny that you focus on that. We haven't prepared at all. I, uh, for, the, for the audience, just to let you know, I said to Connor, I didn't want to know in advance what he was going to raise because it makes it much more authentic. It makes it much more real. So I've just had an exchange. So, so essentially, I, I'm, I'm into, I, I mean, there'll be a third book in the East West Street Ratline series, and it brings us more to recent times. It's the Pinochet case, because extraordinarily, just as East West Street was on the origins of crimes against humanity and genocide, it is forgotten that Pinochet was indicted for cri- originally for crimes against humanity and genocide. It changed subsequently, but that was what it started with. So I've begun the process of researching that. And one of the people that I wanted to talk to was a former Home Secretary who was in charge of matters at that particular moment in time. And I'm very delighted that we are now engaging in a conversation. And in that conversation, one of the things that I said that I think in a sense reassured the former Home Secretary was that actually, to my mind, the significance of that episode was that it lasted two years and it didn't matter too much that Pinochet in the end, to my view, wasn't sent off to Spain because what was catalyzed was a narrative, a form of storytelling through law in which facts emerged, entered public consciousness and catalyzed consequences. And it was only when Pinochet returned on that very bogus you know, he was ill, he couldn't face trial, he couldn't possibly send him to Spain, he was too ill. It was a nonsense. It was a concoction. It's obviously a concoction. He arrives back in Chile, and the events in London and Madrid have catalyzed a reckoning. And then justice begins to work. So for me, the justice ideal is not about punishment. It is about telling stories. And coming back to what we've been discussing, I'm increasingly of the view that the formal mechanisms, courts, institutions, legislators, are not the end in themselves. They are a means to another end, and that ultimately we need to find ways in the law and in the social sciences to reach other places. And the the central place is the family, which brings us back to the vectors. If I'm going to keep away from them for a minute, if I may, because I was going to ask you something about whether or not if you were the chief prosecutor at the ICC, an English person has been appointed, Mm. would you say, right, I'm going to make law part of communication. I'm going to go after Bolsonaro. I'm going to go for Egricide. I know it won't work, but my goodness, it'll make waves. The Pinochet thing in the end, he got back, but goodness, everything changed. I've been reading Philippe Sands. He says it's not the result that matters. It's the consciousness raising. How far should a lawyer push a system in pursuit of what the lawyer calls justice without the system breaking? Well, that's a, a very, very big question. Um, your question is premised on an assumption that the ICC is a sound, well-functioning institution, and it's not. It, it faces tremendous challenges. And international Criminal Court, just for those. Yeah, the International Criminal Court in The Hague. It needs a period of consolidation. It basically needs to deliver results. And I'll explain why in my conversations with the new prosecutor, my line would be, forget about the big names. Get yourselves a few results. Go for the low-hanging fruit. 
I'll give you an example. Uh, it doesn't come up with this prosecutor, but with the well, well with the, the, the current prosecutor, the new one will have a different view. I got very involved off the back of East West Street, where I was approached by a an extraordinary German psychologist called Jan Kisselhahn, who had created the um, program to bring 1,100 young Yazidi women from Syria and Iraq and uh, camps back to Germany for post-trauma treatment. They had been abducted by ISIS. They'd been serially raped. And he wanted help from an international lawyer. Why? He explained to me, because part of the recovery process for these individuals was the belief that justice was possible. And he needed help as to what justice meant, genocide, crimes against humanity, whatever it was. And at his instigation, I went off to The Hague and met the prosecutor's office and said, look, look, they've caught some nationals from countries that are members of the, inter of the International Criminal Court. And therefore, they, you've got jurisdiction of them. Some of the rapists are in camps. We know who they are. We know where they are. You've got jurisdiction over them. And I was told, no, 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 no. We're not going against the rapists. We want to go only against the people who ordered the rapists to rape. We only want to go against the main men or the main women, whoever it may be. And I think that was a structural mistake because you need to be able to tell stories and stories include stories of success. So you've got to start somewhere and you start, if necessary, at the bottom of the pile and work your way up. Of course, Nuremberg was the opposite. Nuremberg, they started at the top. And the consequence of that was that people at the bottom generally got off scot-free, leading to the absurdity of the news today of the 100-year-old, you know, frankly, irrelevant guard at some camp somewhere who's now been extradited from the United States to Germany for trial. Crazy situation. Now, I hear you. There's been a series of, of, of questions come in saying, I think against you, they haven't heard this bit. Look, Bolsonaro, forget equal side. What about taking him to the ICC, International Criminal Court, preventing a government from combating the spread of COVID, from obtaining and distributing vaccines? Now, you know, what we're talking about here is the credibility of law, aren't we? It's one well, thing to tactically go for the low hanging, the easy, the anonymous, the lost, but the public sometimes cry out for a Pinochet moment. Well, Connor, Absolutely. And if I'm often asked, what are the singularly significant moments in my professional academic life? And the Pinochet moment is always one that I mention. But you and I are not starry eyed about the law, and we're certainly not starry eyed about international law. Uh, we overlapped a bit in our early days at Cambridge, and you will recall that one of our colleagues, a remarkable person, I think a member of your academy, uh, Sir John Baker, uh, and I was a, a young research fellow at St. Catherine's, and John would say, come and have lunch, Philippe, and tell me what you're up to. And of course, it was wonderful to do that. And I would describe some obscure point of international law to him that I was engaged in, and, and he would pause and you know, stroke his beard and say, yes, yes, Philippe. We had a similar problem in English law, I think it was about 1472, and it took 218 years to sort that issue out. And that's where we are on international law. We're in the Middle Ages. We're, we're not at the equivalent point to a domestic law today. So it is all well and good to talk about the Bolsonaros or the Trumps or whoever you want to talk about. But the reality is it's a fragile developing system. I mean, after all, it is only 
75 years ago that the idea that states were not omnipotent, that the idea that the president or the emperor could not kill and maim his own citizens and subjects disappeared with crimes against humanity and genocide and human rights being invented only 75 years ago. So fine, yes, let's dream about going for the top notch characters. But the reality is it's a long game. And that is something also that the law books that I read and the classes that I took with my wonderful teachers back in the early 80s never really articulated to me. They never put the world of international law into that broader historical, sociological, anthropological, psychological, historical context. And I think it's that reaching out in a much more multidisciplinary way, in a sense that I'm struggling in my own way to do. Right, right. I'm going to fire at you some of the questions. There, there have been a few from the audience that are pouring in. Here's one. It's somebody writing from Scotland. They prefer to remain anonymous. Very topical, I think. And also, you're, you're still with Penn, aren't you? I am. I'm the president of English Pen, which I'm there very are, proud of. There you are. Uh, what about this current trend? I don't doubt it, actually, in democracies to legislate so as to erode freedom of speech. The big story at the moment about Navalny uh, being withdrawn as a sort of prisoner of conscience, not mentioned by the, the contributor on the basis of speech of which uh, uh, Amnesty disapproved. But uh, the government in Scotland are on the point of passing a hate crime bill. Uh, this person says looks more like a thoughts crime bill. There's been a lot of controversy, not least at UCL, about, about the whole question of anti-Semitism yes. and so on. Uh, what, what, where do you want free speech? Are you an I'm very, very extreme, I'm afraid. Um, I mean, on many issues, I'm quite conservative. But on free speech, I essentially take the First Amendment view that it's pretty much an absolute right. And short of um, catalyzing immediate harm to human beings, I am generally against the criminalization or regulation of speech. So it may surprise you, I'm against Holocaust denial legislation. I think it simply makes the speech go underground, and I'd prefer to have it uh, above ground. I'm troubled by, for example, the bans on a president of the United States by private corporations. But I, of course, understand the argument that these are private spaces regulated uh, by their own contractual arrangements rather than um, the public law. But essentially, and this has come from being married to an American who was a litigator for 10 years on free speech for an organization founded by uh, Anthony Lester, Interrights. Um, I've come to the view that these apparently modest first level incursions are the thin end of a terrible wedge. And I'm a passionate believer um, in freedom of expression, the line for me that must not be crossed is expression that incites physical harm to human beings. And reasonable people will put that line in different places, including, for example, the speech you've probably looked at it also, as I have given by Donald Trump on the 6th of January. Does that cross the line or is that protected political speech? Reasonable people can disagree uh, about that. But I think we need to be very careful in Scotland, in England, and elsewhere. I'm also very troubled by no platforming. I don't like it. Um, may the ideas be out there, however unattractive they are. And on the definition of anti-Semitism, I was part of that group at 
uh, UCL, I do not like the definition. I think it is perfectly legitimate to criticize Israel uh, for violations of international laws and international humanitarian law, and to criticize Israel is not in itself anti-Semitic any more than to criticize Britain or any other country is anti-white or anti-this or anti-that. So I'm quite uh, hardline on free speech. What about using trade bills to punish countries that are involved in what you say is genocide? Now, we may have a doubt about genocide, Philippe. Leave those aside. Maybe you want to bring them back. But horrible stuff's going on in the country of X. We know what we're talking about. And uh, the British government decide, under pressure from Parliament, Parliament tries to enact it and so on, supposing, to don't trade with places that commit what's commented upon, justified as genocide. Where do you stand on that kind of use of trade law to impose uh, kind of universal standards? It's a question from Brian Chung. It's linked to one from Elliot Wilson, actually. Are there such things as universal human rights? Do they exist? And are they common to every culture? In in principle, I I recognise the vital importance of that linkage. And one of the problems that we have in our world of law is it's like separate self-contained ghettos where you have international trade lawyers and then international human rights lawyers, international environmental lawyers, and they're not all talking to each other. So we need a lot more joined up thinking about international law and other laws. But you will have noticed that I have perhaps a little conspicuously stayed out of that debate. And why? Here's why. I really value and appreciate and respect the initiative of David Alton and others who are pushing to get a foot in the door on linking trade with other issues. But I can't escape what you allude to, my concern by focusing on genocide. You know, why is genocide worse than crimes against humanity? It's not. Srebrenica, 8,000 Bosnian Muslim men, recognized by the Yugoslav tribunal, a genocide. But around the same time, 3 million people killed in the Democratic Republic of Congo, just a crime against Uh, humanity, no recognition for that. So my concern is that by even assuming English judges or Scottish judges could ever, or Northern Irish judges could ever really form a view as to whether a genocide is happening in X or Y place, I feel for the judges, by linking it only to genocide, you have the unintended consequences of saying, oh, if it's just a crime against humanity or a war crime, no problem, we're fine to trade with them. And the reality is, war crimes and crimes against humanity are far more frequent than genocide. So I'm open to doing it, but if you're going to do it, you have to do it in a way that does not legitimate other forms of horrific behavior. And that's my concern. Question from Alex takes us back to something we were touching on earlier on, but it's a specific question. Can international law be changed? It's the composition of its courts, its structure, to be able to Alex's words, redress the uneven distribution of power between former colonial powers and the global south. Is there material ways it could be done? Big issue. To answer that question, go onto the website of the International Criminal Court, okay? And you will see things called preliminary examinations and investigations, and then you'll see cases. Click on cases. And what will you see on cases? On cases you will see there are 30 individuals indicted. And guess what? every single one of them is black and every single one of them is African. Blacks and Africans do not have a monopoly on international crime. Something has gone wrong. The justice system is indeed lopsided and it takes its cue, frankly, 
from the justice system that was created in that Nuremberg moment, when the decision was taken to prosecute, if you like, only on one side of the story. And I think the question that Alex has asked is a huge question, and I think we have to be honest about it. There is a colonial and racist hangover, not only to the design of our institutions, but to the way in which the law operates. And I'm part of that, the way I teach it, the way I think about it, the way I get involved in it. And I don't know how you break that system. I'm really beginning to agonize over the legitimacy of an order which 23 years after the International Criminal Court was created and which I and Andrew Clapham were involved. We drafted the preamble. We were proud of what we were doing. We thought we were doing something that was positive, but it's not. It's an institution which tends to reinforce the impression that Black people and African people are the repositories of criminal instincts. And I'm deeply troubled by that. Well, it's not obvious what should be done. You're not saying I've got this plan that sounds well. Well, what, well, what, what you've got to do is so you begin to redress the balance by investigating, as this current prosecutor is doing, Afghanistan and torture at Bagram, or the British failure to um, uh, deal with torture in Iraq, or the British failure to allow hundreds of Chagossians to return to their homes in the Chagos archipelago in the Indian Ocean after two international courts have found they were lawfully, unlawfully removed and that Chagos is part of Mauritius. The failure to allow them to return is arguably a crime against humanity. Will a prosecutor go against the United Kingdom? <laughs> you know, um, tough, tough. Uh, even a British prosecutor. We're winding down. I love this question from Deirdre, Deirdre Osborne. In speaking of your many audiences and in altering your performance approach in the courtroom, do you feel you have to create persona to most compellingly present your case in each context? To which I add, which Philippe Sands is speaking to us tonight? The same one. It's um, You've not seen me at the International Court. The style is exactly the same. In the classroom, I taught this morning with my wonderful LLM students, uh, actually about Nuremberg and the Israel-Palestine decision taken by the ICC um, a couple of weeks ago on the 5th of February, a few weeks ago on the 5th, 5th of February. Um, I, think the, I think they've melded. And what I've begun to notice, actually, is that my style of advocacy has begun to um, infuse, be infused by the style of the writing um, and vice versa. I know that I take from the Peace Palace in The Hague and from my classroom in the style of writing, and it's happening also the other way around. I think it's pretty much, uh, pretty much the same person. I'm, and, and I'd be, I'd be troubled. I, I also have a tough partner who keeps my feet nailed very firmly to the ground, um, and that's a good thing. Well, the last question is from me. It's going to be uh, on that theme. Normally, the team work up a brief which includes some deep criticisms of Philippe Sands, for example, or whoever it is, and I then. I then repeat them and you deal with them. They could find nothing. They could find nothing. If you were criticizing yourself, Philippe Sands, what would you identify as the weak points in you that you would then probe were you a lawyer for the prosecution against Sands? Where are the weaknesses? Is he an imposter? Is he an imposter? Um, Has he pulled the wool over everyone's eyes? 
And does he actually do nothing properly? Does he really do research? Does he really function as an advocate? Is he really a writer? I think that's a question worth probing. There you are, Philippe Sands. That's been fascinating and interesting. Thank you for making the time to speak to us and good luck with the next projects, plural. Thank uh, you. It's a, it's a real pleasure, Connor, and thanks to you and the Academy and really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this British Academy podcast. Please subscribe, share and rate this series from wherever you get your podcasts. For more events and conversations, please visit www.thebritishacademy.ac.uk or find and follow us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.